if you want a strong young people, young people who won't simply shatter like a glass when that falls off of a table, much as the immune system has to be exposed to things which are harmful to the body to be strengthened, the soul or the mind of the person has to be exposed to things which will challenge it. And only by that measure will it strengthen it. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today's guest is Dr. Shiloh Brooks. He's the faculty director of the Engineering Leadership Program, associate faculty director of the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization, and also an affiliated faculty member in the Engineering Management Program and the Hertz Program for Engineering, Ethics, and Society. All of this at the University of Colorado. He's a colleague of mine, a friend, and I would say that, you know, we've we've interviewed a lot of what I would say are extreme athletes, and today I'm going to call Shiloh an extreme intellectual. Uh, There's more to, you know, being your best self than just the physical side of it. I always like to say mind, body, and spirit are important, and so today we're going to talk with Shiloh about what it means to strengthen the mind. Welcome back to another episode of The Forge. We are super excited to have Shiloh Brooks with us here today, mainly because it's been a really interesting month as we all know. And Shiloh, a lot of your, if not all of your research, the writings that you do, the book you've written, the teaching that you do for students in in the universities and outside of the universities are focused around leadership, the relationship between politics, science, and culture, political theory, kind of perfect for what's going on today. So I just wanted to open up the show and ask you, how are you feeling after our recent inauguration and the political scene that's going on right now? Well, you know, I mean, by any measure, it's been a difficult week, but I have to say, I'm not so discouraged as you might, as many might be. I think, you know, you have to put things in the grand scope of American history and not even just American history, but political history more broadly. And, you know, it's been worse. (laughs) It's been worse. (laughs) The other thing is we had a peaceful transfer of power and a free and fair election, and that is rare on this earth. And so regardless of who hates whom, our institutions have shown themselves to survive. And that's really important. There's a lot of, of times in political history when we couldn't get over that hurdle. And so I'm hopeful that that in the grand scope of the narrative of American history, whatever it turns out to be when the when the book is finally closed, this will be a relatively small blip. I mean, I, I don't deny that it's a big deal, but I would encourage people to think about the Civil War, what people must have thought when there was blood flowing in the streets and brother was fighting brother and, you know, half a million people die. That's a different America than we live in today. And, and to compare our America to that is frankly, it's inaccurate. And so I think politics is often difficult. These things are hard to digest, but one need not put oneself in a narrow horizon. One should always think about the grand scope of American history and political history and try to do what one can to bridge these gaps. I got to follow that up. Shiloh, do you think, you know, as you said, 
the good news is, is the system held. The system did what it was supposed to do. Do you feel like we, do you feel like it was close to maybe breaking? <laughs> I mean, there's, if, if a few more dominoes fell in maybe a different way, would, would the system have been exposed, do you think? You know, I think it's it's hard to say. I mean, one thing we can say is that, and I say this very seriously, the institutions held, as I said, but the norms did not. And by that, I mean, there are unspoken norms of elections, of, of politicians, both on the left and the right, what it means to be a president, a senator, a congressperson. And those norms were violated by both parties throughout, <laughs> the, you know, the past three or four years, just the way that one conducts oneself, unspoken things, the way one treats others, the things that one says. And so in that sense, I find that troubling. And if that persists, that could lead conceivably in some manner to the decay of the institutions. But, you know, again, it's just, it's very, people should understand what a special thing it is to have elected representatives. We still do have elected representatives. Everybody in the House of Representatives is an elected person from their district. Everyone in the Senate is an elected person from their district. That's so rare on this earth. You know what I mean? And so in that sense, those institutions held. The President of the United States, both the one who was inaugurated Wednesday and the one who was inaugurated in 2016 were elected in free and fair elections. This is what I mean. And so insofar as that's the case, I haven't been worried about our institutions. And I'll say this, and this will probably strike some people as odd. In American politics, we have to have an arena where people can dispute elections. Now, it may be that, that those claims are false. It may be that they've got the wrong arguments or that they're demagogues or whatever the case may be. But we don't do ourselves any favors if we say, this is a conversation that can't be had. We simply can't have that conversation. We can't even suspect that anything's going on. I'm not, of course, not saying that anything was going on. I'm not saying there was any proof. I'm simply saying that the conversation has to be, you, you ha this has to have a place in the public square as ugly as it may be. And so I was pleased to see that the conversation was had, that the institutions held firm, the vice president, the, the Senate, they did what they had to do. Of course, they were under extreme duress. And so in that sense, I think it's worth pointing out that as bad as things got, the better angels prevailed and the institutions showed why they've survived for 300 years. That leads, wow. into, that leads into a great question that in, in previous discussions, you have described yourself as a seeker of truth. Can you explain what that means to you, how, how that might relate to critical thinking? And I, and I think it, it probably relates to what you just said, yeah. and even civil discourse. And so what yeah. does that mean to be, except for the obvious, you know, seeker of truth? So what does it mean to you, Shiloh, to be a seeker of truth? Yeah, you're right that it's why I said what I just said, that any conversation has to be allowable in the public square, even ones that we, that we find, you know, repugnant or, or problematic in some ways. And so I think to pursue truth from my point of view means that you don't decide before you begin to pursue truth what the truth is, such that you're open to any alternative account of what the truth is about a given matter, no matter how far-fetched it may be from your own convictions or intuitions. And so what this requires is that someone approach another person, a group of people with whom one disagrees, with the mindset that this person has something to teach me and I have something to learn from them. They may be wrong, but they are probably right about something somewhere. 
And they may know something that I don't know, even if they're wrong. And so I can learn from that, even if they turn out to be wrong. And, but more importantly, I may be wrong. I'm fallible. I'm not an infallible person because I'm not a God any more than any other human being is. And so it's not inconceivable that something that is so far-fetched as to be ludicrous to me, upon further reflection, holds some water. And that doesn't mean to say that it's not false, but it might mean that I ought to give it a second thought. The other thing that approaching someone with a different viewpoint than you have, who you think is wrong, can do for you is if it's true that they're wrong and you're right, then the burden is on you to calcify, harden, and sharpen your argument such that the truth stands out in bolder relief against that which is false. Because if you don't do that, then your position becomes orthodoxy or dogma because it's not challenged to show its merits. And I think this is the disposition of a person who seeks truth. It's got to be the disposition of a person who seeks truth. And so what this requires, and this is very important to me and it's something I've been thinking of lately, is uh, the quintessential American virtue, or at least it used to be, tolerance. And what tolerance means is not simply that one tolerates somebody who one likes, right? If tolerance done properly, it ought to hurt a little bit. It's like exercise or the dentist or getting a massage. It's, you're not doing it right if it's not just a little painful. And by that, I mean there's somebody who you want to silence, who you wish would go away, who you really don't want to speak, whose views you really don't like, but you grit your teeth and you bear it and you say, I'm going to tolerate it. I don't like it, but I'm going to tolerate it. Because if you don't do that, it's not tolerance at all. If you say, well, we'll tolerate only the things that we like, only what feels good, sounds good, and is in harmony with our own thoughts. So if there's no pain involved in the process of tolerance, it's not toleration at all. And so I think that this is another quintessential virtue of the truth seeker, to be willing to suffer a bit, to say, golly, I don't like what that person says. I don't even like them. But I think they should be able to speak. I think they should have the same access to the same venues that I do to speak. And I think that I should have to meet their argument head on. And then I'm not going to deprive anybody else of the right to listen to them because I don't decide what everybody else thinks is true. I can only decide what I think is true. So if I want to silence them, well, I deprive all these people of the right to listen to them and make up their own darn mind. And so I think that these are some of the things that a truth seeker has to harbor in their heart. Oh, and... I got to say, technology, I think, is what makes a lot of what you're saying not, well, I'm going to say difficult. And social media in particular, you're talking about truth-seeking and tolerance, curiosity, and the difference between silence versus freedom of speech. How in the world do we filter through that and build up our grit and open-mindedness when we are infiltrated daily? And I don't know if you're on social media or not. Yeah. Uh, Ron is. <laughs> I refuse. But how, what's your, what's, what do you do and what's your advice? Well, you know, I don't do it. I don't have any kind of social media accounts at all. But I look at this from the point of view, and perhaps this will strike people as odd, but intellectual nutrition similar to physical nutrition. You don't, if you can help it, and if you're right thinking, you try not to go around and put things in your body that you know will harm that body. I mean, you just, that's not, you don't live your life by saying, well, I want to, you know, I know these things are harmful for my body, but I'm just gonna fill my body with them. And certainly, and perhaps people do live that way, but when they do that, live that way, they often suffer consequences. Their friends become concerned. We call these people on occasion drug addicts or whatever the case may be. And we say, you know, this person needs a certain kind of rehabilitation. There's some, some something is off kilter. And, and I say the same way about your intellectual diet. 
cognizant people, most people, I think most of the time, probably know what's good for them. It's it, Most of us have a certain degree of common sense by the time we've reached the age of 21 or 22. I'm sorry, 18-year-old students, but uh, you're getting there, but you're not quite there. Uh, but at any rate, <laughs> um, most people have a certain degree of common sense. And I would say to people, monitor your intellectual diet. Treat your mind with the same care, reverence, and respect with which you would treat your body. I think there's a sense in which one this is simply, uh, if, if one is disciplined, should refuse to ingest the junk and should try to see what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. And, and I, I mean, you know, in a lot of the cases you talk about social media and, of course, there are, you know, conspiracy theories and all these things in our time that are floating around. My sense is that a, a person of, of ordinary industry can nine times out of 10 determine what's nuts and what's not. It's, in other words, this is, doesn't require a particular gift or skill. Many conspiracy theorists, for example, know that they are conspiracy theorists. <laughs> they, you know, they, they self-identify. And so there's something in them that already knows that what they think is a little bit off. And so that's, that would be my advice is to monitor your, your intellectual diet and use common uh, sense. That's funny. Can you can you define nuts? <laughs> What's nuts? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying though. That well, sometimes I wonder if if nine out of ten people could figure that out. But it, I, when I talk to my students, I, I get the sense that that you know that age group, and I'm going to say twenty to thirty years old, I think they get it maybe a little more than the older generations. And the research, I think, bears this out that, and I know I'm using generalizations here, but like a baby boomer is going to be more susceptible to believe what they see on social media. They look at that as that is as some kind of a news source. And I think that's where we start getting into this trouble. And again, I don't want to throw all baby boomers under the bus. It's certainly not across the board. But do you think that the, the newer, you know, the, the younger generations probably have a little better grasp on this because they are often called digital natives. They've grown yeah. up in this world. Mm-hmm. Well, the ones graduating now even are, have been on social media, Facebook, since they were old enough to be on social media and Facebook. Amazing Thank you for enough. making me feel old, Tara. I know, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I made this point before, and I, I, I say it again. I do think that this is true, that as one grows up with these things, they become, you know, they become extensions of one's daily life such that one's better able to deal with them. I think I've used the example before, the printing press, that when the printing press came out, any, came out, anything that was printed was thought to be true because it was printed, because everything that had been printed before, you know, the Bible, for example, was thought to be true. If it was printed, it must be really darn important. And then people sort of smartened up, you know, and realized that things that were printed didn't necessarily have to be true, that this was just a new part of our lives. And that, in fact, many things that were printed could be false. The same is true with technology, especially the news and these sorts of things. And you point this out, Ron, that, you know, there's a generation which didn't grow up here uh, with these tools. And so anything that's written must be true. You know, this looks authoritative to me. It's on this website that I hear has a billion people who visit it every day. This must be true. Whereas young people, 
you know, they've grown up in a culture of memes and false things, and they've seen the news stories come out, and they've watched Twitter ban all sorts of people and YouTube, you know, kick folks off, and they've seen their YouTube uh, stars who they follow who play Minecraft get kicked off for being, it turns out, very disingenuous and dirty people. This happens all the time. And so I suspect that they're like, oh, you know, this is not surprising to them and so, so that they have a certain kind of capacity for discrimination of these matters. And so I, I'm, I'm willing to buy that, that even though I said a moment ago that one doesn't have common sense until one's 21 or 22, at least fully developed, that, you know, 16, 17, 18 year olds aren't totally, you know, the lights aren't turned off completely. And that uh, especially in the digital world, they might have some things to teach their, their older friends and family. They got to keep up with the Kardashians. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> what do you think about that, Shiloh? And what do you, what do you, or both of you, what are you getting from your students when it comes to deplatforming users from uh, social media companies? Do you think that's yeah? We had a pretty different? big, you know, a pretty big person just get deplatformed. <laughs> What's your thoughts on that? Is that a violation of free speech? Well, I mean, first I'll say. It's, you know, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private corporations. And so certainly Twitter, Facebook, they are free to write user agreements and to determine within the lanes of those user agreements who's violated them and who hasn't as a private company. I see no problem with that. But I'll tell you this, I'm really, really troubled by it. I'm very, very troubled by it. I think they have ascended to uh, a level in which you know, they've they've sort of gotten a monopoly on what I would call the virtual public square. It occurs to me is that it's very problematic uh, to limit anyone's access to the public square, whether it's virtual or not. And so while I don't think that they took action that is, say, unconstitutional, simply because the First Amendment applies to the government's relationship to the people and not to private corporations, I don't strictly speaking, approve of some of the bans. Now, I understand that the user agreements have uh, very strict and I think wise and prudent rules about the incitement of violence, that this is prohibited. I think that's a great idea. But I also think that the standard is perhaps not applied equally to both sides. And I think the question of what kind of speech incites violence is up for interpretation. And oftentimes, I don't think that the, the interpretations that have been uh, offered are necessarily the best. So I'm deeply, deeply troubled by it. But on the other hand, I, I don't think that they've overstepped their bounds as private corporations. And I think, you know, ultimately, this will come to a head in some kind of legislation, regulation, or some other sort of thing. I mean, it's, I say this with all honesty, no one doubts, everyone knows that Silicon Valley is predominantly left of center. I think it's very, very problematic if people who are primarily left of center have a uh, monopoly on what reasonable public discourse is. Now, I'm not saying they're guilty in every case of in instituting their political views. I can give you an example. It's last I looked, it was against the rules of Twitter to dead name a trans person. And by that, I mean, you cannot call a person by the name that they had at birth when they have adopted a new name and a new gender. So you can't, you can't dead name a, a trans person on Twitter. But there are people right of center who think that biology trumps ideology and they want to call a spade a spade. At least this is how they understand themselves. I'm not taking a side either way. And so they will say that so-and-so, even though they identify as this gender, they're actually the gender that they were born with. And you can be banned 
for making that statement. This is a hyper-politicized issue. And again, I'm not taking a statement either way, but I know what Twitter will do. I know what their position is. And of course, there are countries where transgender people are, are oppressed, had, you know, they have cruelties done to them and these sorts of things. And I think Twitter has to sort of think through the culture of the given place. What if it's illegal? to be, to identify as another gender? Will you still ban people who are saying you can't do that in our country? You see what I mean? When Twitter's own laws come into conflict with the laws of the nation and the culture of the nation. So I think there are all kinds of very difficult things here. Yeah. I mean, the part, the, the part that, that troubles me as well, and you touched on this, is who decides? This is open to interpretation, and I think that's a slippery slope when we start saying, okay, you, you know, you three people decide what's right and what's wrong, you know, and I'm, I'm just using an example, but, but you get what I'm saying here is who, who gets to decide what's right or wrong. This is going to lead right into something that, that Tara and I have been kind of doing a little bit of reading on. There's a book out there called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and I, I believe it's Greg Lukanoff. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. And it really, it touches on this idea that it really focuses on college campuses. But and so this movement, if, if I want to call it that, of turning campuses into safe spaces where young adults are shielded from things that make them uncomfortable. And, and a couple of those examples are microaggressions. I didn't even know what this was till I read the book. Uh, I, I do now. But for an example, a, a microaggression is saying to somebody, where were you born? And that can be taken in the wrong way, kind of saying, you're not from here. And so for me personally, being a 52-year-old, I would think there's nothing wrong with saying, where were you born? Hmm. I would not know how that would be inappropriate. The other one is trigger warnings, that we want to make sure that we don't say something that's going to be traumatic to our students or our young people. And so really, the kind of the premise of the book is, are we doing them a service by trying to remove any of that, that pain and that suffering that you talked about earlier, Shiloh, are, is, is this helping? Are, are young people become mentally tough, resilient, and have grit? What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I like that book very much, and I, I've been influenced by Jonathan Haidt and his work. You know, one thing I like about that book is uh, Haidt's concept of, of what he calls anti-fragility. And anti-fragility, he compares it to the immune system. And he says something like this, that, you know, if you, if you want a healthy body, one of the things that you have to do to strengthen your immune system is go out and expose yourself to things that will challenge your immune system. And that you will only get a stronger immune system if you find things that your body has to resist, right? And this is, the, and this is what he calls the concept of anti-fragility. And he transfers this uh, analogy over to the mind. And he says something like this, if you want a strong young people, young people who won't simply shatter like a glass when that falls off of a table, much as the immune system has to be exposed to things which are harmful to the body to be strengthened, the soul or the mind of the person has to be exposed to things which will challenge it. And only by that measure will it strengthen it. And it's the same with the immune system. If you were to keep a person in a room for their entire life and then let them out, they would get, you know, horribly sick. 
right? Because you had protected them from anything that might challenge that immune system and strengthen it. And he says, this is the very interesting thing about the immune system is it's one of the few things that when it's challenged, it actually gets stronger versus, you know, something that you bend and you bend and you bend and it eventually breaks. Well, the immune system, the more it's challenged, the stronger it gets. So the challenge, the resistance actually makes the thing have more integrity. And so he says, this is the same is true of the mind, that you need to be exposed to ideas that challenge you, that challenge your preconceived notions, convictions, maybe even offend you. Over time, this will strengthen you, and you will see that these things are out there. You don't have to disagree with them because you've been exposed to them, but they won't completely destroy your identity or your sense of well-being or your spiritual health when you're exposed to them because you'll have been exposed to them so often and so frequently that you will have developed a kind of strength and such that the immune system and the mind or the soul are similar with respect to the way they respond to phenomenon that challenge them. And I find this to be true. And I think it is bound up part and parcel with the purpose of education and especially liberal education. So I'm troubled by the phenomenon you identify, Ron, and, and the ones that Haidt is troubled by, but I, I suspect there's a solution if we're willing to, to implement it. I think that's the tough call because I think all three of us are probably on the same same page with being pretty troubled by this uh, and all working in higher education. And I think the most troubling thing is the fear from people like professors or comedians even, some of the big name comedians, Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, Bill Maher, he, none of them will go on campuses anymore. And I, I think to myself, of course they don't. And of course professors are very, very cautious of what they're, they're teaching and talking about in class, but that's feeding the problem in my opinion, right? If we keep giving into that, uh, we're feeding the problem. But I, I don't know that there is a way to work around that because we have a pretty strong-minded generation here that I don't know that they want to hear from <laughs> us older folks that it's time to get a little bit more resilient and anti-fragile. But what do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I say this, it's, there's a sense in which, I mean, this will sound very old fashioned for which I apologize. But when one steps into the university, the university is a place that a young person comes for instruction. They don't come to give instruction, they come mm. to receive it. And if we switch that around, we've got a real problem. <laughs> and so, in fact, they should get wise to it and we should start paying them tuition, my fellow professors, and they shouldn't be paying it to us. So there comes a point when, when it comes down to brass tacks, we can't be so egalitarian in the university. It's unfortunate, but it's true. There's an order of rank. Presumably there are experts there from whom you would like to learn. And if this is true, that the people who have the PhDs and who devote their life to teaching and research do know something, then the burden is on them to make good arguments and to show that, no, the things that you're demanding or the things that you're saying, they don't have the complexity and the nuance that they should. And let me try to show you that the argument, you're, certainly what you say, young student, is is part of the argument, but there are all these other considerations that need to be taken into account as well. And so unless our faculty, and I'll say this because I think this group is even more important, our administration are willing to, are willing to stand up for the original truth-seeking purpose, instructional purpose of the university as an enterprise, then that enterprise will collapse. 
But if they do stand up and if we do show ourselves to be the professionals that we are, the teachers that we are, the passionate lovers of learning and wisdom that we are, then I I think the institutions can survive. Wow. You know, as as everybody knows that listens, right along with Shiloh and Tara, I I teach. And I got to be honest, I, I get nervous about bringing up certain topics because I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. You know, back to that, that idea of microaggressions. Am I going to say something, you know, totally insensitive, like where were you born and not even realize that that's insensitive. And, and so sometimes, maybe a lot of times I back away from that. I don't have the courage to, to have those discussions. I think it's got to start with courage. Let me pivot this discussion as we, as we talk about courage, because I know Shiloh, you're quite fascinated with the Wright brothers and not just what everybody knows about the Wright brothers is their pursuit of man flight. And I too, being a pilot am, am fascinated. I have read the autobiography that that's a wonderful book. And one of the things, if you don't know their story and I'm sure Shiloh, you'll get into this, but they were, they won the race, but they were less well-funded. They were less educated. And so you know, going back to this this idea of courage, they number one, they had the courage. But how did the Wright brothers succeed when they had Langley was out there that, that had all the money and all the education and, and they beat him? And so how does that happen? And how, I think this is going to be important uh, for our listeners that are entrepreneurs, how might that fit into uh, maybe a mindset for entrepreneurs nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I, let me take the question in two parts. So I'll go back to what you said about your own you know, fears and, and needing to have courage. I mean, I think you're right on that this this virtue is one which is required, which is perhaps less emphasized in modern times, but which if we don't have the courage to say what we think, to stand up to those who might try to intimidate us or silence us, and to make arguments as reasonable people of goodwill, then we won't be able to save the educational enterprise. And so, I think you're right on. And then and then the question sort of becomes, well, what are some examples of courage in human history to which we could look for insight in order to perhaps bolster our own? And you bring up one that I've discussed in writing and uh, in teaching, which is the Wright brothers. And they're extraordinary for a number of reasons. Of course, they didn't uh, have college educations at all, the way many entrepreneurs are not, don't have college educations. They're self-made. And they solve the arguably the most difficult uh, engineering problem in the history of mankind, after all, ancient people would look up at birds and say, if only, if only I had wings. I mean, this is, you know, look at our superheroes, look at Superman, they fly. This is something that human beings have fantasized about for, for millennia. The Wright brothers solved the problem for about $1,000 from a bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio. And the question is, well, how did they do this? And this took two things, tremendous courage and tremendous curiosity. The curiosity came about because the Wright brothers saw that the problem of flight was a multidimensional one that would require them not just to be good builders of machines, but to students of biology, to look at the bird's wings and to see how the bird flies because they were trying to solve the problem of steering. People could glide, but no one could steer the craft. And so the Wright brothers observed birds. They got data from the Smithsonian Institution that Langley and others were using based on experiments that professors had done at universities. They got this data, especially some data on aerodynamics and the way wind affects wings. 
And they tested it out and they realized that the data was wrong, that the experiments had been improperly conducted and they had to build their own wind tunnel and gather their own data while these, and these university professors were wrong. You know, they gave them bad tables of data. And so they were just widely curious and utterly undeterred. And the courage comes in, so that's the curiosity. The courage comes in because you have to understand that People had not flown before. Most people who were trying out flying machines at the time would end up uh, with obituaries in the paper because it's a very difficult thing to test a flying machine if one doesn't know it works. And here we go. Let's jump off a cliff. You know what I mean? So the Wright brothers... I mean, it was, you know, they drive out to... They don't drive. They, they go out. They sail out to sail and, and, and take a boat to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And they get in these crafts and they're flying around with no parachute, with no like seatbelt. The seatbelt in the airplane hadn't been invented yet in these airplanes. And, you know, it's just unbelievable. And there's two ordinary guys from Ohio. And along the way, as they were testing the craft, there were some mishaps. And then there was a really tremendous mishap. Once they had actually developed the craft, they crashed in Virginia. Orville Wright, I believe it was crashed with an army pilot by his side and was debilitated for the rest of his life. It took a tremendous amount of courage to do something that no one else had done to put one's body at risk and to put one's mind at risk to say, look, I'm going to go and have to read and study and think about things um, I haven't done before. And so it's an extraordinary American bootstrap story, the Wright brothers. And I think it's one that, that anybody who's interested in entrepreneurship, leadership, engineering, American history can benefit from. For the listeners that don't know, Angela Duckworth has kind of made the word grit, I don't know, it really brought it on to, to the scene. And the way she defines it is passion and perseverance for a long-term goal. And when I hear that, I say, okay, that is, that's the Wright brothers, you know, passion and perseverance for a long-term goal. And, and that, I think that is part of what what helped them win that race. And, and again, that book's fascinating because I think the other side story to this, and I don't know if there's any commentary on this from you, Shiloh, but it really kind of crushed Langley. Langley was, he really kind of ended his life as a failure because he felt like he should have won that race and he didn't. Yeah. And I don't know, to me, that's kind of an interesting side note that as the Wright brothers, you know, found their success, who they were competing with just kind of disappeared and, and in some ways became a footnote in history. Yeah, you know, and it wasn't uh, to the detriment of the Wright brothers that this happened to Langley. They were very, very graceful. So they would be, they would always acknowledge him as a pioneer. And, they, and so this is a lesson for people that just because you triumph does not mean that you get to gloat. And the Wright brothers would not gloat. They were always perfect gentlemen. And they would, Octave Chanute, who was another pioneer in flight, Langley, they would be so graceful. And, and frankly, people, this is a very interesting story that might tie back to something we said a moment ago. And that is, after the Wrights discovered or solved the problem of flight, made a flying machine, the Smithsonian Institution, which had funded Langley's research, would not give them credit for being the first in flight. And so the Wright brothers conversely said, well, we're not going to give you the right flyer to display in your museum. And they sent it off to England where it remained. And the Wrights were constantly embattled because the Americans thought, why is the Wright flyer, this great American accomplishment in a museum in England? And the reason was that the Smithsonian Institution who had funded Langley refused to give the Wrights credit. And so what the Smithsonian Institution did 
was they went back to the Langley Aerodrome. They made modifications of the aerodrome, and they began to conduct test flights of it. And then they claimed that it was actually the first flying machine that it worked. And it was an elaborate hoax. They modified the craft. And the Wrights were on to this. The Wrights weren't idiots. They knew that the craft as built would not fly. And so they go back and forth in the press about this. You know, the Wrights write this director of the Smithsonian Institution at the time. And finally, many years later, the this, this Smithsonian Institution admits that the Langley craft had been altered. They admit that the Wrights were first in flight. And now if you go to the Air and Space Museum, you will see the Wright flyer hanging in there. But this was... This is a lesson for people about the vanity of the prideful. And the rights remained fairly gentlemanly throughout the whole thing. They knew what was going on. They weren't fools. And so we talk about canceling people, besmirching their reputation. Even these great people did not, were not able to avoid that. But ultimately, at the end, uh, got their due. Yeah, gosh. The, the, I didn't share this, but I'll share it now because I think it, re- it relates to what you just said, Shiloh. And I think this is an important message is to... To have grace not only when you win, but also when you when you come up a little short. The way I met Shiloh, I didn't know Shiloh. Shiloh and I competed for the same job opening. <laughs> we were both up for a director position that Shiloh now has. And, and as you as you might be able to surmise, I came in as they told me a close second. The point to this is I actually went to a friend, colleague, mentor of mine, Angela. Team and Dino, if she's listening, uh, a little call out for her. And I went to her and I said, you know what? I'm disappointed that I lost, but I said the committee made the right choice. I, Shiloh, you were the right person to, to get that job. And I was okay with saying, you know what? We don't always win and that's okay. And so I'm so glad that you joined our program and I love the work that you're doing. Hey, thanks for, for saying that. And I, I think, you know, from my point of view, I was nervous that you, because I look, I'm joining your show. You're not joining mine. And I'm grateful that that you guys, folks in business, folks who know a lot more about business and engineering and all these things than I do, were willing to have a weirdo come and talk about these crazy things. Uh, that's uh, So it may be a testament to my capacity that I was able to get the job, but it's a capacity, the testament to your your grace and tolerance that you're willing to have me. So. Well, thanks for being the weirdo on the show today, Shiloh. We super appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. (laughs) Hey, we ask all our guests before they head out. For the people that are listening today, wide range of different audience members, what is one piece of advice or hack that you have for them just from your background when it comes to building mental toughness, resilience, and grit into their daily lives? Yeah, I think the only thing, well, the most important thing perhaps that I can think of is to expose yourself to things that are difficult for you. And I mean this in a number of different dimensions. So with respect to your mind, put, make a friend, a dear friend who disagrees with you about everything and see them not as their political party, as their racial identity, whatever the case may be, see them as a human being. That will make it much easier for you to sit down with them and forge uh, a friendly conversation, argue with them, learn from them, approach them with humility, and ask them to do the same. So expose yourself to different people. Expose yourself to different ideas. Read books that challenge your worldview. If you're on the left, read books that might challenge your political view by people on the right. If you're on the right, read books by people on the left that might challenge your worldview. 
Do the same with literature, movies. Don't just stick with what you like. Find something that you think you don't like and, and try to articulate what you don't like about it. And then try to articulate what you do like about it. And finally, and this may sound odd to people, expose your body to challenges. Exercise. See what your limits are. Realize that you're stronger than you thought you were, both in mind and body and in spirit. And so I think that this will... This goes to sort of in the vein of John Hyde. This will strengthen you in every dimension. But you have to be willing to say, I don't want to live a life devoted to comfort. Comfort is not the highest good for a human being. The highest good for a human being is, is challenge and excellence. Excellence requires that one op- overcomes obstacles. So place obstacles in front of yourself and overcome them and revel in the feeling of overcome them and revel in the feeling of growing and becoming more vital. That would be my advice. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media. 